Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Three excellent guests join me this week, so please, if you could introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. G'day, Phil. Thanks for having me. My name's Cody Royal. I've just finished up after nine years coaching Canada's men's AFL program. So Aussie Rules is my sport. I'm also an author. I've written two books, uh, The Tough Stuff and Where Others Won't. And now I coach other head coaches in elite sport. Hey, Phil. I'm Doug Lamov. Uh, I study teachers mostly for a living, but I've, uh, now I include coaches in that definition. I have a book called The Coach's Guide to Teaching, uh, which I hope is as good as The Tough Stuff, which I've just started and is really super. So. Hey Phil, uh, my name is Darren Lewis. Um, I've worked as a performance analyst for roughly 15 years. Uh, I've just started up my own small business trying to help other analysts get into the field and bring them into the world of performance analysis. Fantastic. Gents, absolute pleasure to have all of you on. Really, really excited for this one. So quick reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content that the guys discuss and recommendations to other high quality content. So we're going to get straight into it. And Cody, we are coming to you first. Uh, Yeah. What are you going to talk to us about? So I was a little bit disappointed in finding this article that actually got sent to me. And the reason I was disappointed is because I didn't find the story before I published my book. It was the the perfect piece of content. But so maybe it was a, a supplementary piece or if I do a version two, it'll definitely be in there. But there's an article published in The Athletic about Chris Peterson, who's who was the head coach of the Washington Huskies football team, so University of Washington. One of the premier college football programs in the United States. And, uh, you know, what was amazing for me was this was someone that was at the top of his game over his head coaching career at at Boise State, his previous college, and then University of Washington. He was 147 and 38, his win-loss record. He'd coached five top 10 seasons. So in, in U.S. college football, they're essentially all ranked against each other, you know, one through 150 or however many Division One schools there are. And so he had his team in the top 10 in the country five times out of 10 um, and stopped. He'd just re-signed a contract until, I think, 2025 and just decided to stop. So he left about... million on the table. And what was incredible about it is that, one, it kind of flew under the radar a little bit. Um, Two, at the top of of his game, teams winning, players are getting drafted. They're regularly in bowl games, winning bowl games, like literally ticking every box you could possibly tick as a college football coach. 
you've got a contract through 2025. He could have just coasted and taken his money. And, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of change in college coaching um, in the football programs. If you kind of are good or good enough, you keep your job. And this is someone that packed it in. And so I did a little thread about it on Twitter and, and I really captured what was really interesting to me. And, you know, this is ref- him reflecting on his own career two years post stepping away. And what was really interesting was that he was aware through the whole process of what he had gotten himself into and how he was kind of going through this transformation and really second guessing that this coaching thing isn't lining up with me as a person, but the awareness still wasn't enough to make, to have him make changes. And so I think that's really interesting for coaches because I think we all understand that it's kind of unreasonable what we do, the hours we work, the amount we're available, the, the pressures that we're put under completely unreasonable the lack of time off, the lack of the ability to refresh, all of that, but we still go about it. And so for someone to step out of that environment when they could have just mailed it in and collected their 35 million is quite remarkable. So I'll just go through a, a couple of really key points from the article. And again, it's it's just a, a Q&A, but it's about three or 4,000 words of Q&A with him. So they cover quite a bit. The first point is just that you know, the rat race is really strong. So just what I talked about there in that, you know, even if you know that a lot of the stuff that you're doing and covering doesn't really matter, you still get sucked back into that rat race. And he was quite aware of that, but was still willing to go along with it. He talked a lot about what I call the God particle So struggling with letting go of power or letting go of duties and responsibilities and allowing them to be disseminated down to staff to allow you to actually coach. Because when you absorb everything up to your level at the top, one, no one underneath you can be optimized and no one underneath you can help. And it kind of becomes this power struggle. And so he talks about letting go and coming to grips with just getting better at controlling the controllables and he actually talks about how we preach that to our players but then don't do that as coaches the next bit is just like i talked about he had an awareness of the unbalance so he talks about you know he'd come home at night and be trying to go about his you know, life at home with his, his wife and his kids, but still be a thousand miles away. So even being aware of the fact that I've got to get home and I've got to spend time with my wife and I've got to concentrate on that because that's a soul enriching thing. Even being aware of that, he still couldn't help but think about what are we doing on this play or how am I going to tell this player that he's not playing? So again, it's not just, it's not enough to know you've got to take action against that awareness. He also talks about the grind and not being able to recharge. I I position this in the tough stuff as there's a whole chapter called you're hired for your brain. And what's ironic is as experts in human performance, we apply none of those lessons about how humans operate in their optimum to ourselves 
And so your high for your brain means we know the impact of sleep. We know the impact of recharging. We know the impact of diet. We know the impact of exercise. We know the impact of those soul enriching activities of having family and friends. Literally, that is our job to go and research, but we give them all to our players and take none of them. And he was, he was very aware of that. He talks about his inability to recharge and refocus. And then the last one, and this is really the key for me, is that coaches need coaches too. And I'll, I'll read the quote out. One of the mistakes I made is that I didn't get somebody that could help me that's not in the fight every day. All we do is coach everybody else up, yet most of us don't have somebody that can help coach us in this really tough competitive arena. It was quotes like that that kind of pushed me after writing the tough stuff into helping other coaches. So I, I think this is going to be the next wave is we're going to start exploring how coaches can help other coaches and you're going to move away from this model that we've had of 100-hour weeks and coach has got to be the last one out and the first one in in the morning again and then they've got to watch 70 hours of game film in between games that are 24 hours apart. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you need a, an athletic subscription to be able to read the article, unfortunately, but um, if you do have one of those, I, I recommend it. Uh, it's called Chris Peterson reflects on the busyness, the imbalance and the uh, hustle, I think, of, uh, of coaching. So, uh, yeah, again, very fascinating. You just don't see this. This is quite unprecedented for someone to leave that much money, have that much success and then go, I don't want to borrow this. Like, I feel like no one told me about all this other stuff that you have to deal with and there's not enough money that you can pay me that's going to make me continue to take on this challenge. And unfortunately, that's going to continue happening. And we saw an example of that yesterday with um, the Boston Celtics, that we are going to lose amazing coaches in their prime because of all the other bullshit. And it shouldn't be that way. We can do a better job. Thanks, Cody. I did loads to unpick in that, which is, yeah, really, really interesting. I think my first question, and this picks up on, I, I think, a couple of the challenges the guys that were on last week spoke about. How how well do you three manage this type of stuff in, in your day-to-day? -day? Like, you've all got, you know, important jobs and, and busy jobs, and, and actually, what kind of strategies are you using, um, or are you not? Like, how have you found this type of challenge in the environments in which you operate? Because I think it... it it's probably something we're all aware of. I'm just not sure it's something we talk about a huge amount. So I'd be really interested in where, where your heads are at on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll go on that one. It's, um, it was a really interesting read, actually. And um, I've, I've heard Cody talk a lot about coaches and the pressure that they feel from the job. And actually, it's the peripheral tasks that quite often take over from the primary role, which is being a coach. Um, and personally, I, I, I can relate to that because I, I ended up consumed in my role myself through caring to start with, um, but also because there was an expectation for things to be done and kickoff time on a Saturday never changed from 3pm. So if tasks weren't complete, 
there was, um, you know, not necessarily consequences, but there would be problems that would unfold further down the track. Um, so that, that kind of really resonated with me. And again, probably one of the reasons I'm sat here now doing something different is that um, I gained some really good perspective when I had my son and I didn't want him to grow up wondering where I was on a Saturday. But there's not necessarily the same level of support mechanisms for coaches, performance staff, people who put the work in behind the scenes that we, we deliver to players. Um, so, yeah, it's a really relatable topic for me. Yeah, for me as well, as you were describing the article, I was remembering the, just a personal experience starting a school and being the head of the school. And it was, it was very much like that because, you know, the reasons for it are probably slightly different. I think, you know, with a school, my feeling was always like, you know, kids a, a building full of 500 kids has unlimited needs, right? There's always something else that you can be doing to make their lives better, right? In sport, it's similar. There's always something you can be doing to get ahead, right? You know how competitive it is. Um, and ultimately, I, le I left the job for similar reasons, which is, you know, I had, I had my son at the time and, you know, just realized it was, un it was unsustainable. But, you know, is it in, um, it's interesting because I think one of the things I figured out while I was there was the necessity of, of delegating, which is an incomplete solution, which I think is kind of what you're describing, which is I just like when I ask myself now, who is the person who can start and run an educational institution that totally changes outcomes for kids and communities that don't have great schools? The answer is no one. <laughs> no, no one can. If you think about all the demands of that job, no one can do it. And actually the, I think I was a pretty poor principal of the school, <laughs> but my best moments were the ones where I realized that I couldn't do it. And I really trusted the team of people that I had around me. And when I think about it, it was really four or five of us running the school. And the best moments were the times when it was the four or five of us together in my office, you know, sometimes under stress, but sometimes laughing, you know, kind of making the decisions together, which I think is, I think is interesting because I'm a team sport person and I prefer to make decisions in groups like that. And so I think that that was, you know, it's a really hard thing to do. I think I'd sort of stumbled into it, but really learning to trust people and honor them and love them by giving, giving them responsibilities, even sometimes responsibilities that you love, that you want yourself. There's a really interesting thing that someone said to me about becoming the head of a school, which is he said, generally, I think heads of schools manage, if they were a science teacher or a history teacher, they manage the department they used to teach in worst. <laughs> which is fascinating. So if you're a history teacher, the worst department, if the head of the school is a history teacher, you can expect that the worst department in school is going to be the history department because you're unwilling to let it go. And you don't quite trust other people to step in and take the job and you kind of meddle in it. And you know, for, for a variety, you know, um, which I think is fascinating. I think the thing I didn't figure out when I was doing that job, and maybe one of the reasons why it tore me apart is because, um, I didn't figure out how to maybe what I would say delegate up, which is, I think what you're describing when you talk about need, like coaches needing coaches. I'm reading Eddie Jones's um, memoir right now. And he describes, you know, how powerful it was to bring in Neil Craig and Frank and Frank Dick and just to be like critical friends that, you know, it's really, really hard to sustain excellence and to find balance and to find the like, high-performing people take pleasure in growing and developing. And suddenly the higher you go and the more successful you are, the less opportunities you have to learn and grow and like feel that pleasure. 
and learning. And so I think part of what those guys do for Eddie Jones, as I take it from reading the book, is that they both ask him hard questions and hold, <laughs> help him be accountable, but also like create the joy of growth and development and camaraderie that I just feel like you probably need. It's such an isolated, it's a job where you can't leave your hotel room basically. <laughs> so um, yeah, those are some of the things I was thinking about when you were talking. Yeah. So, you know, I've been lucky, obviously, uh, as I said earlier, Aussie rules is my sport. And so, you know, I've spent some time with Neil Craig and, and picked his brain on, on his role and and asked for some advice from him and and just his experience that the great thing about Craigie is obviously he actually comes from performance. He's a sports scientist that got into coaching and is now coaching coaches. And so there isn't a box amongst the spectrum that he doesn't tick in terms of experience. So, but what I find most interesting about his role and appointment is that He's essentially another head coach. So a lot of organizations are trying to solve this problem with uh, just like put a sports psych next to them or, or, you know, that's not the answer because the sports psychs are in there and they're already swamped because they've been sold a mission to fix everyone's mentality across the organization with no responsibility and kind of a, a corner office with a light you know, like a light bulb that barely works. And, and so just to add the coach onto that because the coach is struggling, I think is the wrong way to do it. The way we fix this problem isn't by um, just giving them a psychologist. It's not by just making everything regimented. It's by giving them the actual kind of emotional nourishment that they need as well. And that's why I think head coaches coaching head coaches is actually the answer in that sometimes the answer to the problem is, mate, you get your wife, I'm going to get my wife and we're going to go out for dinner and we're going to have a couple of beers and we're going to leave it all here. And that is the best way to deal with that issue. (laughs) And I can't think of a, of a psych who's going to tell you that, but a coach will tell you that and say, this is what we're going to do. This is what you need right now. Let's go and do it. And so there's, the, there's these tiny little nuances of head coaching that other coaches understand that I think that is really where we're trying to go with this. And so, yeah, you're starting to see more and more at the top end, you know, your Guardiola's, your, your Eddie Jones's, they have coaches. We copy everything else they do. So I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. It's like there's a couple of other key pieces that they have that you might want to start to pay attention to. There's a reason that they have companions and coaches and people that stand by them 24-7. So I just wish Chris Peterson had had one because, again, he's someone that's probably lost to coaching when it could have potentially been an easy solve. Maybe not to coaching coaches though. I mean, I do think it's a real, like what he went through, which is decide essentially deciding that your family is more important is a, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing you lose sight of as a coach. So maybe that's the ideal preparation for the job that you're describing. That's exactly it. And if anyone knows him, please put us in touch. I'm trying to get in touch with him. Any listeners out there. 
But do you think that the value of speaking with someone that's walked in your shoes for a time and experienced the things you've experienced is where the value of having a head coach alongside a head coach as this support mechanism comes in? So whatever the topic is you guys are talking about, you know that somebody has been through the same thing, felt the same emotions or experiences with regard to a specific topic, and that's where the support comes in, perhaps? That's exactly it. So, you know, um, the reason that there are so many CEO groups is because only the CEOs know exactly what you're talking about. You know, the sleeplessness, the, the worry, the, uh, the anxiety, the, you know, I call it the weight, just these little nuances. Like the CFO doesn't quite understand. The COO doesn't quite understand. And so you put a bunch of CEOs in the room together and you say, this is our new support group. We're going to call ourselves whatever, the CEO group of Toronto. And everyone shows up every week and you know that whatever you're, you're struggling with, there's someone there that can go, yeah, I've been through that too. And so it's been remarkable the amount of DMs that I have gotten since the tough stuff went live from other head coaches like my book is not revolutionary. I'm not a particularly good uh, writer. I don't have a massive profile, but head coaches are reading that saying, I've read all the books about coaching and no one talked about it like this. Like the amount of people that have said to me, I gave your book to my family because I couldn't put words to what I was going through to what I was going through. And so they didn't understand. And they're like, I handed that to my wife. I handed that to my son, to my, my partner, whatever it may be, and said, this was what I was struggling with. And so, yeah, to answer your question, Darren, is yes. The, the people to help head coaches are other head coaches. Do you think there's an element of, of also then pulling in that kind of naive expert that someone that is just detached from that, that has a completely different perspective that can sit there and actually when you say, oh, you know, I've done 90 hours this week and I'm I'm not delegating, they just go, you know, they, 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 the detachment creates that awareness where you go, you know, this is insane, right? You know, the stuff you're doing could be delegated to somebody else or could be managed better or you need to write a list and actually then work out what you don't need to do. Do you know, is, do you think there is a place for, for having a number of those types of individuals? So you've got somebody that has experienced it, but you've also got somebody that hasn't that can just challenge you on the ridiculousness of it almost and, and just not be, I guess not, I, they always say the best mentors are not in your sport or, or your business or whatever, because they're not, they're not looking over your shoulder trying to get your job or, you know, there's no, there's no kind of relationship issue about actually how open can I be to this person because it could come back to, to bite me type stuff. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Again, there's a pattern that we can follow. I mean, executive coaches, you know, every, every executive in the world that's worth anything has an executive coach. And that structure is that they come in and out of their lives and help them deal with things. You know, if they get themselves buried, like you talked about there, Phil, it's that objective, you know, come in and just kind of rip the bandaid off and go, mate, this is ridiculous. Like, what are you doing? We talked about this last week. You know, how, how did you, how did you dig yourself this bigger hole in a week since we spoke last week? And so, yeah, you know, I think there's a couple of ways of doing that. Obviously, every organization can't afford a Neil Craig um, 
or a Manel Estiate like Man City have. But potentially what you can do is is even have a, a little bit of a committee, right? Build a little committee around yourself as a coach of various people from outside, maybe someone from inside, but inside becomes hard because of the power dynamic. There's a natural power dynamic that exists around head coaches that makes it hard to address you in that frank way that you need, but it is possible. But yeah, to your point, I mean, again, this it's executive coaching for coaches. And I think the being once removed and being able to be objective and not be swept up in the emotion of the games and things that are going on. I think that's the perfect model. I have to say, even just, I was thinking this in the car last night, just listened to a couple of podcasts that really resonated with me. Um, just actually how therapeutic these types of conversations are every week. And that it's, it's the perk of being able to line up my own guests, I guess. But actually, it's kind of, you know, if if I've got a load of stuff that I think they'll end up talking about, you can steer the conversation that way and get some real great insight. And it just comes in lots of different forms. And, yeah, you just get to to chew the fat with people that have experienced similar things and the same stuff or not. Or you get to learn a, a ton of stuff that's brand new, which is, which is pretty cool. So, um, yeah, I think there's lots of ways to do it for sure uh i'm already conscious of time so um I, we could definitely go on about that one for a lot longer but um i think we'll kind of park park that one there and doug we will come across to you um so far away great uh so i've got a video that i'm going to share with you it's of, it's of the uh, nfl coach pete carroll uh who's a fascinating coach and it's just a video of him talking about his philosophy of practice um, and it's fascinating. So I, I just I just wrote down some of the quotes. First, first of all, you don't really ca- you don't get a sense for the video unless you actually watch the video because you sense his energy and his upbeatness and his passion. And he's in his mid seventies, I think, when this video is shot. And you see him, you see footage from him, you know, like running from drill to drill along with his guys. You know, like uh, you just get the sense of the way that he lives. But there. Uh, I just, I wrote down a series of quotes that it's about a five or six minute video. The original video was longer and I I telescoped it down to some of the things that I thought were really interesting. But the first thing he says, you know, introducing the videos is he's talking about practice and says, this is where we make us. And I just love that framing of, of practice. It's not just, I mean, yes, it's where we get better, but it's also where we shape our culture and decide who we are. And maybe like the theme to the remarks here is that, is that practice is game day for coaches. Um, so the next thing he says is there's video of the players tapping in. There's a sign that says, I'm in, that they tap when they go out the door. And he says, when they tap in, it's a positive statement about they about what they intend to do. I just love, I love that starting point because it's a ritual, right? And I think rituals are underrated in, in, in cultures and how important they are. And they're so important that players often invent game day rituals, you know, for like which pads you put on first, you know, and like things like that, because comforting and they're important and i just think it's interesting that that he takes that idea of a game day ritual and applies it to practice which is like i make an affirmation that i'm like that helps me to focus and get in the headspace for maximum performance when i come into practice and then he's talking and he says it's crucial that we make every day a great day that starts with the coaches we get together beforehand in a disciplined fashion to make sure we cover all of the practice schedule we want to throw a great practice. We've got to be organized to do that. One of just to maybe even to like a, a little bit of 
Cody, your point about just the, the unbearable burden of responsibility of being a coach. I love the idea of getting together with coaches beforehand and like reviewing roles and making it kind of like a team sport for the coaches of like, what are we going to do? But the phrase, we have to throw a great practice. Like it, it sounds like a party, <laughs> which is like, just, a, you know, that it's not a grind. It's like, it's, it's where we create us. Uh, I, I love that. And kind of the responsibility of it, which is like the culture of practices on us. And he says, um, we have a real format that we believe in. I don't think it's the specific format that's so important, but that you have one and that you keep it consistent so players know what to expect, so the coaches know what to expect, so that everyone can do things really well. I think he's getting there at like the psychological concept of flow, which is like when you lose yourself in an activity and it becomes timeless because you sort of know how you're going to do it. That's part of the joy of sport and practice can, you know, the familiar routines of practice can create that sensation for players. He then is the next quote that I love is practice is really a performance for us. We want it to be really sharp and really precise. And there, I just think like he's thinking about it as a game, right? He calls it a performance that like practice is where, we demonstrate who we are and we're like, that's, that's how we measure our excellence. Um, it's all about the attention to details from the littlest of things, the alignments on the field, the precision of how you set up your drills so that your players have no wasted time. They're always moving. They're always going and they can feel the organization. They feel that sense of urgency. That's so critical. And I think that's an underestimated part of coaching that like players can feel organization. I think this is really underrated in the classroom, which is, it is really hard to build relationships with people when you waste their time and when they don't feel productive and when they don't feel like you are actively making them better, triply so when they're professional athletes and their identity and their lives and they're, you know, are wrapped up in getting better. And I just think the sense of like, when people can feel the organization, it's a form of respect for them. And I, you know, I just think players respond to that more than most coaches realize. And he says, we feel that the players are going to do whatever we ask them to do. So it's really on the coaches to have their mind right and their attitude right. They've got to be jacked up every day. So it starts with me. And I just think like that culture of responsibility there, like his first thought, if players aren't in the right mood or the right headspace for practices, like that's us, right? We shape that. The fundamental attribution error, I think, is this fascinating concept in, in social science, which says that we tend to attribute the failings of other people or the behaviors of other people to internal characteristics when in fact they're often reacting to the environment, which ironically as coaches or teachers, like we often control. And so we're like, Oh, he's lazy. Is he, or like, he might be, I'm not saying he couldn't be, but also like one of the questions we could ask is what about the environment might be contributing to or mitigating that, you know, that tendency. So I kind of love that quote. Um, maybe I'll just read one or two more from this video. Uh, he just said, I love this. He says, hopefully we practice sharper than anybody can practice this game. Like that's his, you know, his criteria for his own, his own success is just the quality of, of, uh, of the, of the trainings that he runs. And then this is my, maybe my favorite line. We're really disciplined as coaches to always talk about what we want to see the desired outcome, not about what went wrong or what the mistake was. We have to be disciplined about how we use our language. We always talk about the next thing you can do right. It's always about what we want to have happen. I just think that maybe if I was going to summarize the coach's guide to teaching, it's about, like I actually quote this in, in the book and the notion that like that competitive advantage for him is having a, a teaching philosophy shared among his coaches, articulated among his coaches about how we're going to give feedback. And the feedback is we're not going to talk about what the mistake was, we're going to talk about the next step on the path to excellence. And that's how we're going to give, that's how we're going to talk to players. And I, I just think there's so much 
competitive advantage out there in being in intentionality about, you know, the, the interesting thing about these interactions of feedback is that they're, they're tiny. And so we're likely to overlook them, but they reoccur thousands and thousands of times in the course of, a, of the lives of, of players within our organizations. And so I just think there's so much value on the table to being a tiny bit better and having a philosophy about all those interactions. And I just, I, because you guys live in the world of professional sport and I don't just wondering how often that happens and how many coaches get down to that level of granularism granular about the mundane details of how we're going to interact with players. So anyway, I thought I found the video fascinating and I think people will really enjoy watching it. Thanks Doug. I, I, I just pick up on that last point first. I think that probably came out. Um, we ran a coaching conference um, across kind of Canadian rugby that, that Cody headlined, which was a, just a brilliant experience. And one of the sections on there from um, Mark and coach logic and Aaron tackle was, around exactly that actually how much time do we spend as coaches observing our performance and and I, I i would probably see this i think that's that's the shift that's starting to happen now is is you know coaches or, or performers in that space rather than just analyzing what the players are doing and I, it probably come you know supported by Co- you know cody's message of the x's and the o's don't really matter like that's i think it's it just becomes more and more about you as the coach and your ability to to do that type of stuff really well and some of the mechanisms and and the ways you go about that so i think i think that's a great question to raise and hopefully that sits with a lot of the listeners for for a bit of time and they can think about what that actually looks like for them i love that this was your thing doug because I have loved this video. I think I wrote maybe my second or third blog ever about practice is everything, the, you know, the, the original video. And you're right in that you actually get a feeling just by listening to him talk about what they're doing. Like there's excitement coming from his voice and like radiating from him that jumps off the screen, like comes out of YouTube at you as the, the consumer And you're like, oh, my God, like imagine playing for this guy. And, you know, for me, a couple of things really stand out. One is, you know, I I talk a lot about the crossovers with user experience. And, you know, we know user experience, you know, anyone who's got an iPhone is basically every single thing that you can possibly do is manufactured to the nth degree in terms of, Who's using it? What, what do they need? What information do they need at what time? How, what mind space are they in when they're doing that? Um, and so we know that from, you know, human computer interactions and Seattle have taken that and applied it in a whole new domain. And so we tend to think about user experience in things like the design of our practice facility and like the flow of it. And so, you know, do they go from the sauna to this area? You know, how many steps do they, you know, that's all quite manufactured in sport, but this is just a whole new level of that of, well, what's the part that sucks the most about training, standing around and listening to the coach drone on about the mistake that was made in that last drill. They don't even stop at Seattle. They go drill to drill to drill. If something bad happened, they move on to the next drill. There's no stopping. It's like regimented on this thing. And that's the minutia that I think they've really captured and made fun of just get rid of all the, the stuff that the players don't like that they don't need to be involved in. 
Um, and then to, to your point on being disciplined about the communication and specifically around what we want to see, there's another article about Seattle and it might even be from Mike Gervais and it's that they use the phrase, something great's about to happen. So when a player drops a pass or makes a mistake, misses a tackle, the reaction and, and the, the communication palette is something great's about to happen. And what it means is there's a next play coming and this if you catch this next ball, it can be an 80-yard touchdown. And you just, you're out of that, woe is me, oh, I missed a tackle, head down, you know, hands over your head kind of uh, mentality and straight back into that positivity. And it's just those little communication palette things that they've developed and they have their own little language in Seattle of all these little things as they go along that just bring the players and the coaches and everyone around back into this performance mind frame. Um, and then one last thought as you were talking there, it's to what you're saying around, you know, we want to throw a great practice and practice is performance. If you watch the playbook on Netflix, Doc Rivers says something quite profound that kind of I didn't see a lot of people pick up on. And he said, when we were growing up, it wasn't basketball practice. We were playing basketball. All we wanted to do was go down to the court and play basketball and practice. And, and I think that's a, actually a really important point is, and to, to what Pete Carroll's getting at, is they see this as play. They are playing football. They're not practicing. Players hate practice. If you don't already know that, you're probably in the wrong discipline. A lot of coaches hate practice. You get so geared up for the games and it becomes a bit of a slog for everyone. But what if we made it into play? You get to play football every day. Like this is what childhood Cody, childhood Doug, childhood Darren, childhood Phil wanted to do. I just want to play the game. And so they've tried to capture that essence and infuse it into, into their practice. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I can't say... Uh, I could do a whole two-hour spiel on it. Yeah, it's such a great video. If you're listening, go and watch the video. Honestly, it jumps out at you. There's so many things. It was um, the the tapping of the, the sign above the wall was super kind of um, really resonated with me because in a club I worked for before, there was almost a little moat around the, the, the practice fields and what was happening before training was players would come out of the gym in dribs and drabs and, you know, they would kind of kick a ball around and it was a, a little bit um, of, a, of a messy start to, to practice or, or training sessions. And so something that happened was one of the coaches actually put an intervention in, in where we kind of agreed we would all cross the bridge together, everyone. So we crossed the bridge and when we crossed the bridge, whatever happened before, if you were messing around or having a laugh with someone, that was kind of, you know, it's it's time to performance mode now, and that kind of really stuck to me, which I thought was super cool. I've always thought that sort of psychological psychological ritual was really powerful, which is to intentionality about when we walk into this rectangle, right? Our mindset changes, and you can talk about it, but really the way to do that is to build a habit, which maybe even connects to what what you're saying, Cody, which is I think that like 
language is the most common habit that we have. We don't always think about language as a habit, but the words we use are our habits. So when you, you know, I think that great coaches build culture through the words that they install. So, that, you know, that phrase, something great's going to happen is such a great way of saying, right. As soon as you make a mistake, get your mind forward, be, you know, be expecting your greatness to emerge that like you, you, you build mindset through that phrase. I think that's really, I love that phrase. Going to seal it. What do you guys see as the role of reflection there? Because I'd be a hundred percent on board with it's a, you know, forward facing activity, but, but how, I mean, Doug, from your experience, how have you seen the best people go about kind of reframing? Because everyone wants to see failure. I, I really struggle with, I hear, you know, heard lots of coaches talk about, oh, you know, practice has to be perfect. And you're like, if practice is perfect. Like they're, they're clearly not stretching themselves. Like that, that's actually, I think, completely the wrong end of the spectrum. Yes, you're going to need some success, but you're going to want to create a load of mistakes and force some mistakes because that's how you get better. So how... How do you deal with those people that get caught up in those mistakes rather than going, I'm going to reflect, but that's with a, you know, forward thinking perspective to this is what the issue, here I go. For me, that tool, something's great is, is about to happen. I would probably want, right, be, because you have a hammer, you shouldn't think everything, you shouldn't walk around thinking everything's a nail, right? Like I would probably want to use that during game, during game, like during game or game-like situations and practice where the idea was to replicate the game because that's kind of I think in the NFL what they say about defensive backs in particular is like you have to have a short memory if you get beaten you have to just like come back and be ready for the next one so maybe it's trying to instill you know like this is the mindset we want from you during performance when something bad happens I probably wouldn't use that in the middle like I mean, I think NFL football is different from a lot of other games in which like decision-making in the moment is so critical in there. I think I really do need to slow down and have times when not only are we comfortable, but like, I think one of the great competitive advantages is that I can create a combination of psychological safety. It's okay for me to acknowledge to my coach, like to talk about the fact that I got that wrong. And actually that's a good thing because better to get it wrong now than on Saturday. And interest in and value. And like, if, if as a coach, I can, um, if I can take the study of mistakes and unlock value for people around us when we get smarter from it, then I think a colleague of mine says buy-in is an outcome, not a prerequisite. <laughs> the way to get people to buy into the idea of reflecting on and studying and analyzing our mistakes is to make it really, really worthwhile for people and to prove to them that it's worth doing. And when I can do that, then they'll be willing to do it. So, you know, it's probably a combination of like, lots of exposure and study of mistakes in certain training settings and then learning to forget them or at least forget them until later until you watch the film in a performance setting and be I would guess but again you guys probably know better than me yeah I love the idea from the military of after action reviews and I I think potentially where we get it wrong from a coaching perspective is that the focus is on the negatives um and so we just, we tend to default to, you know, the hour slideshow or video show at, at training on Monday is just mistakes. To, you know, to the idea of what we're talking about here with the Seahawks is what, what is us? Let's show us at our best because these are professional athletes. They don't need to be shown all their mistakes because you know where they are? They're stored in their heads they can recall every single one of them in 
minute detail most of the time and probably can for years. We need to be showing them what, where we're getting closer and closer and closer to what is us, what is our game model, what is our game philosophy, what is us at our best, rather than you miss the tackle here and here and here and here, and I'm going to tell you why. Right? Like I, I don't think from a psychological perspective that's helpful. I don't think from a physiological perspective that's helpful. And I think you just beat people down. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm all for analysis. I think it's done quite poorly in, in sport for the most part. And uh, I can see Darren is going to go off on this. I'm going to tee him up nicely here. I, I think there's a lot better ways to be doing it. And to Doug's point, it's this, uh, it's a little bit of a, a combination. Like we, we do need to plan for, you know, like um, they, they planned to crash the helicopter in w- when they got Bin Laden, right? They had actually trained for that. What happens if one of the helicopters crashes? The reason the mission succeeded was because they had simulated that and actually gone through it. We still need that. What if all this stuff goes wrong? How do we respond? But it can't just be focusing on when the helicopter crashes because then you don't complete the mission. The thing that was really interesting for me from the video was exactly like you guys have said around how intentional they were about the observations they were making during a practice session, which made me think the players would feel less fear to make a mistake because as long as they were trying hard, that would be something they would be critiqued on in the moment. And then their fixes could could come, as you guys say, you know, with a, a film session or something like that. So that use and intentionality behind how they critiqued in the moment, I think maybe might have helped to reduce some fear levels for I was in the wrong place or I did the wrong thing and any kind of mistake that happened. So that was something that I thought was was kind of a stick up for me as well. I think that's kind of fascinating, which is the maybe the argument is that they're going to look when they critique me, they're going to look at the body of my work, right? As opposed to like, if you make one mistake out of 10, right? That's actually, in many situations, that's actually good. As opposed to like screaming about the one, like, let's, let's step back and look at all 10 and decide what the, what the important theme here is and what, and what the overall characteristic is, which is like, I think you're right. Like, as an athlete, that makes me feel maybe less obsessive about the moment when I'm, when I make a mistake in practice. How important do you feel benchmarking is? Uh, I'm wondering about what that picture of acceptable looks like or that picture of excellence looks like. Do do we need, if we haven't done it yet, I always find that's a challenge as a coach to try and, for me, to try and verbalise or show you what your potential is. If you're not there yet, it is quite difficult. So it's kind of that this was really good, but we can keep going, like, don't settle for this. That was awesome and be really positive about that. But you've got more in you. I think it's one of the most important and under, underestimated roles of the coach is to create a vision of excellence for players. This is what great, this is what us being, this is what great looks like, but this is us being great. And I, just to Cody's point about, I think teachers and coaches miss opportunities to spend time studying success and say, look, here's footage of us doing exactly what we want to do. Why? <laughs> Let, let's take the great, the same level of analysis and not to say, who hooray, here's us, but actually 
um, let's let's take time to look at our very best work and understand why it's our best work and what made it possible so that we can replicate it. I think people tend to think of positive reinforcement as a tool for motivating people, but it's actually one of its other consequences is it helps people know what to replicate. And I just think that like too often in performance settings, people get things right and don't know it and don't know to replicate it and think about it because we've don't spend enough time thinking about like, okay, let's, let's study what went right there so we can keep it happening. Yeah. The benchmarking thing is really interesting. And this is how I try to coach is around creating a mental model of what our excellence looks like. And to your point, Phil, is that's really hard when they don't even know. Um, but this is where your, your small feedback loops and your consistent feedback loops about a lot of things start to help because you can stop a training drill, for instance, and just ask, is this our best effort? Is this, is this our best execution of this pattern that we're trying to, to create? Is this, you know, is this us at our best? And often, you know, because professional athletes or athletes have high expectations of themselves, the answer will be no. So even when it is seemingly going great at training, you can kind of get to this point where it's like, yeah, I reckon you've got a little bit left in you, lads. Like if we can just get these extra couple of things, you're, you're going to see and feel a new level of excellence that I can picture for you, but we're, we're almost quite there. And so that's where I think the power of, of those small feedback loops is in, in drills, the, the micro points that you can get across to elevate performance to what they can't even imagine at the moment. They know that that's not their best already. You kind of don't need to tell them that, but when you, you can ask. Awesome. Daz, hit us up. What, uh, what are you going to talk to us about? Cool. Uh, thanks, guys. Yeah, so I chose to um, talk about uh, an episode from a podcast from the Mission Critical Team Institute, uh, MCTI. Uh, it's about a year old. Um, and in this specific episode, they talk about the differences between um, routine and critical communication styles and the types of environments where we may flux between, you know, routine pieces of, um, communication delivery or you know sort of critical events where the way we deliver might actually have to change um, Preston and Coleman do a great job of explaining what a mission critical team is the types of environments they're talking about with regards to routine and critical um, and for me this kind of concept um, it, it is really relatable because we're all trying to get information to stick with the people we're delivering it to and I suppose what I've done over a number of years is try and, you know, facilitate effective communication. And um, my view on analysis has, has dramatically changed throughout my period as, I, as I've been working in it. And, you know, to reflect on some of the things Cody said, using video to create team recognition, shared mental models is, is really where I'm kind of at with my perception of analysis. But the reason this podcast was so impactful for me is because a lot of times when we talk about communication and feedback, it's always from the perspective of the deliverer. Um, and if you get time to listen to the podcast, Preston talks about uh, a, a light bulb moment where he was reflecting on how information was received. And so, again, to reflect back to the, the Seahawks video and the communication stuff there is how much time can we layer 
into our audience or our squad players, etc. Um, really intentional sort of clarity behind how we're going to communicate in different circumstances to help make sticky ideas, sticky pieces of information land and hopefully have an impact. Um, so yeah, really grateful to be on with these two guys who are super experienced with this kind of stuff. Um, but that's kind of where, um, where I thought it would be cool to, to kick that idea around. Top man, thank you. I'm, I'm wondering, do you think the role of the analyst is changing? Uh, uh, people struggle with the term architect sometimes, but a learning architect, you'd kind of go, actually, is that something that if you've got analysts, they they need to be in control of that, creating that learning, in learning environment and facilitating that? Do you think that's where those roles will, will start to kind of shift towards if it hasn't already? Yeah, I'd like to think so. And, and it was really cool listening to the guys talk last week about some of the topics, but I think it could be quite a nice supportive role for someone who's working as an analyst to sort of fulfill those things alongside a coaching group or a head coach. Um, there's not one way to do this thing. So, you know, this kind of collaborative inquiry approach to a solution, I think would be, would be really good. Um, I don't profess to know a lot about learning. It's, just, it's, a topic I'm really interested in. Um, and even, you know, looking on, on Doug's website to a, a video about, um, is it Denarius Fraser, Doug? I think there's a teacher there. The, the way he would have layered those behaviours into the students, whether it's snapping hands or raising a hand to speak or whatever the, the behaviour is, would have taken time to layer in. And I don't necessarily that falls directly on an analyst's role in, in performance sport, but I think there can definitely be a supportive sort of element to that role and another layer that's added on to, as well as um, the, the core elements of the position, really. Do you guys ever find it weird that coaches or analysts or people in sport know as little about learning as they do at times? Like it, it just, when you reflect on that and I kind of get like, that's, that's the job, isn't it? Like changing behavior, getting people to improve, that is learning. There is probably no better definition of it. But actually, when you come down to it, like, I don't think I know very many experts in learning. There would be a lot of a lot of very good coaches that maybe it's infused, maybe it's natural, maybe I just don't see it. I don't know. But I, I just think, you know, they are not they're not going out there and saying I am an expert in learning. But you would kind of hope we all should be. Luckily, there's a book about it now. And I'm hoping the guy that wrote it will jump in here and, and talk to us about that. Thanks. Uh, I mean, yes and no. yes. I do think that um, the cognitive psychologist Daniel Willingham talks about the cognitive revolution and the fact that we've learned more in the last 25 years than we did in the previous 2,500 about how people learn and how the brain works. Um, and I think like one of the challenges, because I don't think the challenge you're describing is unique to sport, actually. I think it's similar in schools, which you would think it would be the opposite. <laughs> um, but it's a real struggle to get research and understanding of cognition into schools. You know, right after writing about this cognitive revolution, said, Willingham says this is ironic because for the most part, it has not affected what teachers do because there's such a deeply embedded culture of non-rationalism, non-rational, you know, non-scientifically non informed behavior, you know, hundreds of years of doing those things, builds deeply entrenched cultures where people do things the way they do things because they've always done things. And now we're trying to make change 
So I, I think your point is, is well taken. It's also fascinating to me that like, and, and humbling, honestly, like lots of times I'll go to a sports franchise or a federation and I'll start talking about cognitive science and where if I went to a school, people might look at me blankly when I talk about, you know, Daniel Kahneman or, you know, like, you know, even just daring the podcast that you shared about, like, you know, the science of communication and the difference between, you know, routine and critical communication. But like invariably you go to a, um, spending a, a, a setting in the sports sector and someone's read it or like, you know, there was one point where I was at a minor league baseball franchise and, you know, in the middle of the rough in some tiny town in the middle of the rust belt. And I was talking about Daniel Kahneman and like the batting coach took a copy of the book out of his backpack. <laughs> so I, I do think that there, you know, there, there, I wouldn't say there's a single culture. I think, think there are cultures, right? There's a culture of, maybe not thinking about it as teaching and complacency about learning, but there's also a restless desire to, to learn and a lot of people who are really committed to it. So, you know, it, it's a, I think it's important and it's a complex, you know, it, uh, I want, I want to be careful about generalizing because I'm really like, remar- it's remarkable how, how, you know, people see the, people just need to see the power of competitive advantage that something creates and, you know, and they tend to grab it. Part of it, I think is just helping people to see where those, competitive advantages are that's a really good point because it's i kind of bristle a little bit at the phrase that has been popularized recently like um coaching is teaching um because it's it is but it also isn't Uh, and i mean in terms of team sport so you know you've got individual responsibilities for all of the team members obviously to develop skills and et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately you have to have those pieces connect in a team environment to achieve the objective. And so that, at least in the traditional sense of teaching, isn't teaching. And so from my perspective as a head coach, it becomes a yes and no. Like skills coaches is probably as close as you'll get to a pure teacher, like here's the curriculum, here's kind of how we're going to go through it and you're going to be able to do this at the end of it. But for me, who's got to put all the pieces together of all 18 guys on the field while there's another 18 playing against us, that is quite far removed from what we think of as teaching. Um, And so, yeah, but to kind of bring it back to to Darren's um, podcast, was what I found fascinating and it was just this small little snippet was how he's talking about at the start, you know, in the theater, right at the start, um, the messages from the, the staff in there together are about how great it is that that person's there. And like, I love you. And, and it's, it's great to see you. I'm glad I get to work with you. This is before they even get into like the really, like open heart surgery and the whole process talking of rituals, it starts with a ritual of belonging and togetherness before they go and do this really uh, difficult thing. And so I picked up on that from a, a, a team dynamics perspective that they start with love and belonging before they go and actually execute the mission. I thought that was fantastic. Do they talk about it on the podcast also? I was reading about just the cultures of surgery and, you know, like one of the big challenges is like, what do you do when someone makes a mistake and you see it? And oftentimes what people do is they don't say anything about it. 
And so, you know, there are terrible patient outcomes as a result. But some of the research that I read says, you know, when you do these sort of leveling exercises, which is you walk into the surgery and you introduce yourselves to each other. And if you're glad to see someone and you say, like, I'm glad to see you. And you, it has the, it removes hierarchies enough that people are then more likely to say, wait a minute, did that, that stitch didn't look right to me. Are you sure about that? That you, that you're more likely to do that in a setting where you've kind of built those rituals that you were you're talking. I don't, I don't know if that came up in the podcast at all, but I think it's fascinating thing. That wasn't a direct topic. No, it's interestingly, a, a, um, a really close friend of mine, his, his brother's an orthopedic surgeon. I had a conversation with him about this podcast and how do you know whether you did something really successful in a surgery or how would you kind of have an after action review with, with your team in that sense? And, and his response was, oh, well, we don't. But he takes it upon himself to kind of look at stuff um, and do a, a personal review, which I thought was really interesting. The, the, the stuff around um, the environment before surgery was something that we tried to do a little bit in, in team meeting environments where you have some music playing, everyone's a little bit more relaxed. They're not necessarily afraid they're going to get called out in a meeting. And then that's where we kind of stopped with this evolution of how we're going to curate our climate. Um, I, I think that there's a really nice piece of work we could do around what that looks like. Um, and luckily Cody's offered me a job wherever I go, so I might get the chance to, to do that with him one day. <laughs> Darren, how would that look for you working with individuals or teams? Like how much would you differentiate knowing that some players preferred, you know, some information one way or you to talk to them about something a different way? Like was was that you trying to do your job kind of, you know, 35 different ways or or what what does that kind of look like in, in that environment for you? Something I, I've I speak a lot about is having credibility through consistency and i think you gain you get you gain credibility with people you work with by building trust with them and i think again that's where my perspective around the role of an analyst and how we use video as a tool has evolved over a period of time and i think the players i've had really good conversations with are people who i'm really quite close to on a, on a personal level the challenge comes when you're in a coaching office, you hear conversations about recruitment or selection, and you have to maintain professional behaviours because you walk into the corridor and your buddy who you've had a conversation with about a particular play or game and stuff like that then says, am I playing this week? So there's, there's a really tough balance there. Um, and the guys last week spoke about learning styles, but I think that just comes down to how quickly can you get on a level with someone and, and talk their language um, and quite often there'd be conversations where I'd say, listen, you, you need to go and speak to the coaches about this, you know, that, because I wouldn't want to cross that threshold of this isn't my, this isn't my lane here. You need to have a conversation with the guys running the program. Um, so for, for me personally, it was always about building trust with someone, have a credible relationship, and then conversations could go, you know, one of two ways, depending on how you, you would take them. As you say, it almost comes full circle. It's, it's back to that relationship piece, isn't it? Actually, the, the quality of the relationships we have. Go back to, you know, Cody's points at the start the, around actually, well, you know, how do we delegate? How do we create an effective team? 
it's that ability to trust somebody but have that relationship with them that actually enables us to to be able to do that and and get to the i guess like the good stuff and the impactful stuff and the meaningful stuff as quick as possible without without it being with it being genuine i think that's the thing isn't it you, you don't i think everyone knows when it's a bit of a you've tried to get there maybe too quick and it's a little bit awkward or it's a little bit false it's um yeah that's all good um Doug, we'll jump to you. I, we'll, we'll probably carry on chatting after you've gone, if that's all right. But um, yeah, we'll jump to you for your recommendations and then we'll kind of um, carry on the chat. So if you want to uh, give a shout out for whatever you're uh, recommending, that'd be great. Fantastic. Uh, so there's so much great stuff to read out there. Um, first of all, Cody's book is, is excellent. So I would definitely recommend that. Daniel Willingham has just rewritten his, uh, his book about cognitive science, Why Don't Students Like School? And I just think it's... Um, it's a really profound study of the of the role of knowledge and cognition in learning, and so um, it's absolutely worth it. I'd actually already read it, and I'm rereading it again. It's like, well, it's interesting. I'm stunned by how much I've missed the first time through. So that that's that's been a great read as well. There's uh, so there's a lot of great stuff out there, and those those are maybe two that I'd start with. Fantastic, top man. Really appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time. Um, great. To oh, well, can I can I throw in one more actually? There's a book called Motivated Teaching by Peps McRae. It's about, you know, we think about the science of learning and there's a lot of cognitive science, but there's also a lot of social science of learning. And his book is, it's 125 pages. It's really beautifully edited. So you like, you can read it in a day and it's about motivation and what we know about what motivates people. And it's just simple and profound at the same time. Really, really recommend that, uh, that book as well. Awesome. Top man, thank you very much. Hey, thanks, guys. It's been great to be to be together with you guys, and I apologize for having to get onto the less less enjoyable parts of my day. Hey, <laughs> back and so so thanks for including me. Cheers, thanks for pushing them off for us, mate. It's great to meet you. A pleasure. Nice to meet y'all. Cheers, Doug. Cheers, Doug. Be in touch. Just one last point on Darren's podcast. Something that stood out to me. And I'm noodling about it. I don't know where I've landed on it, but it's really interesting to me was there was some discussion around how calm, you know, like the the doctor that was actually performing the surgery, you know, would ask for, you know, a utensil or something and then would just really calmly say, no, not that one, like the other one. And And the conversation went to, how is the other person experiencing that? Because obviously everyone has to be on their A game. So that person's kind of made a mistake there. They've, they've given the wrong tool to the doctor. And what I found really interesting was there was this shared mental model there around, well, they're not actually talking to me. Like that he's talking to my position. And I found that fascinating in general in that, what they're trying to do is strip out the emotion there and say, actually, like you haven't messed up. It's fine. Like just get the other one and don't have an emotional reaction to the way that that was delivered. If, even if it was quite sharp or quite fast or however the message came across. And so, yeah, I've just been sitting with, I, I listened to it again last night and yeah, there's something there that I'm, I'm not quite sure what the outcome is there in terms of, you know, how we interact in team environments. Cause I don't think we can really strip the emotion out, particularly, you know, we, we play emotional games. And so I, I'm not a fan of trying to completely remove all of that and just have these robots going about their business. 
So I think we need to leave the humanity in the games that we have. But yeah, I think there's something there in terms of just how to react to, I guess, bad news or you've made a mistake in the, the those small feedback loops in performance that I really liked. I think that's a great point. And I wonder, will either of you guys, uh, have you talked about that environment in terms of coaching and their language and behaviours? So, um, you know, I, I would tell other coaches I've worked with, like, I will always stand behind the post because if I stand on the touchline, it's emotive and I don't I don't want to get caught up in that kind of bullshit a little bit. I want to be a little bit more removed. I want to try and stay calm and whatever. And But it, it was really interesting because I remember... Um, one of the clubs I worked at ended up a couple of games on the bounce. Game wasn't going very well and I ended up going down to the touchline. And, and one of the guys that had come off was like, oh, yeah, shit, things can't be going well because Phil's on the touchline. And, and I had not ever considered that actually just that change of behaviour would suddenly resonate with them that that's a problem. And now I'm, I'm needed on the touchline almost, you know, to, to solve this problem. And I, I, I'd really struck me and I was just kind of like, yeah, why am I here? Like what, what made me want to come and get back involved in this to try and solve a problem rather than being removed and, and where I was anyway. So I don't know whether you guys would have planned those sorts of behaviors or had those conversations in those environments about how even just how you engage with each other. Yeah, I've started speaking about this a lot because, you know, in working with coaches, I ask them, have you ever presented how you think about coaching to the team? And right now I'm running at a 100% strike rate of no, never. So there's just this assumption that I'm the coach, you're the players, you're going to get coached however I deem necessary. And I'm not even going to bother explaining to you my philosophy around that. So it could be something like what we were talking about. The messages you're going to receive are going to be short and sharp because we want to set that expectation and we're going to develop our internal communication style, our own language internally so that you guys can use it on the field because we know short, sharp, sticky messages are quick to grasp. And by the way, there's going to be 100,000 people in the stadium. So we need that to succeed. So we don't even, we don't even get to that. Right? let alone, to your point, Phil, the fact that everyone is watching you as their head coach, every single thing that you do. You know, I, I say to people, and it resonates because most people have played their games, is when the head coach walks in the gym, the players start lifting harder. They do, they do an extra set, right? And when the CEO actually, you know, walks onto your floor, you do you tie up, you sit up straight, you enunciate more, right? And so you're, to your point, Phil, it's like your just physical presence changes the behaviour of everyone around you. There is a, a natural power dynamic built into, oh, shit, it's the head coach that you need to be aware of. And to your point, maybe even explain, you know, if I come down to the, to the touchline, it might just be that the radios are broken. It might be that I just want to speak to the lads that are coming off and get their feedback firsthand rather than through, you know, a broken telephone. And so my point here is that to build on top of, you know, that, that communication style and, and everything that, that Darren's been talking about and what he sent, I think we need to do a better job of explaining coaching 
to the people that are being coached because at the moment there's just an assumption between the two parties that you're going to get coached but I'm not going to tell you how or why or what the goal is or what my philosophy is around it and I think that's a big mistake yeah I think that's a really interesting concept and that's why the podcast was so impactful for me because you know Doug was talking earlier about a competitive advantage well we spend so much time watching the opposition, so much time changing for them, but we never fully, fully address these kinds of things, which are probably going to have more of an impact on your team cohesion, team dynamic, and all those kind of things than worrying about what the other team are going to do. Um, and, and so that's the real big watch out for using video for me, because we watch video at 80 beats a minute. No one's trying to take our head off. And we talk with this bird's eye view of, the, of a game or of a performance, and we never actually see it through the, the lens of the player. Um, and so actually having a strategy around how we communicate these things, whether it's on the pitch through battle words, which I've seen used before, which were really effective, to let's grab a coffee, this is what it's going to be like in a more relaxed routine scenario. I think that would go a long way with the players so they know, okay, this is what it's going to be like. But there's also this thing where, yes, you're going to get coached and we expect you to receive and act on feedback, but we're not going to address how well we deliver it. It's always one way. And there is more research coming out about the shared responsibility of giving and receiving feedback. But that's why this podcast was so impactful for me, because if we actually lay the line with this is how we're going to operate everyone can actually act a little bit less fearful um a little bit more in the knowledge that there's this shared understanding for how i'm going to be spoken to how i'm going to receive information and, and things like that which i think is really good i think what's fascinating as well in, in certainly the team sports we're involved in it's a lot of that information from coach down or even you know vice versa it's through an intermediary you know what i mean it's not it's not a direct conversation it's through radio traffic or whatever, and that's going through somebody. And I would I would love to see a study. Open mic channels, record the information to the water carrier or whoever that is. What how does that get translated? Is that verbatim? Is that they, you know, they rejig it? Like, has the coach had conversations with those people that are running the messages on around? You need to condense what I say, or you need to strip out the swear word, the, you know, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, actually, it's just this kind of like, and it might be really clear and, and really well structured communication, but what's, what kind of, if I'm the water carrier, do I end up just interpreting that in my way? Anyway, irrelevant of actually whether we plan stuff or not, I'd be really fascinated just to see how that works as a process and actually how you can try and make that more effective. Because in some ways, it, it's a great buffer. Like if your head coach is in the box and they're losing their shit and that the assistant coach is, is running the message on, he's going to be far more calm and calculated. But in the same sense, it's, yeah, you might lose some of the impact of it. Really interesting you mentioned that about having the, 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 the mics sort of transcribed and that was something we have been, been involved with and it was a battle and we had to transcribe afterwards and one of the messages was tell so-and-so to kick that ball further. And the response was, I didn't say that, because we're so emotionally wrapped up in the game, we can't step back and think about what we're saying and 
we we pick the mics up because it's a it's our way to influence what's happening. Um, similarly, run various projects with with cameras in the coaches box because I wanted to see how I was performing. Did I have a positive interaction, or was there actually a time I just need to be quiet? Um, and again, that that was really interesting. So there's there's definitely things we can do simply if there's a willingness to buy into those kinds of things. And I think from an analytical perspective, the value out of that, as we've already spoken about, is far greater than something we might else kind of be distracted by. Yeah, and the irony of it all is that in team sport, you know, team invasion sports that are tough, where they believe it or not, there's another team. We've kind of forgotten about that. Um, and they're trying to do the same thing that we're doing. You know, I'd like to get us to the point where the coach says less. And I mean like a lot less. And it starts to become quality messages. And what that requires is that you prepare the team to solve a lot of the problems themselves. Because unless you're basketball where you can stand on court side and, you know, it's only whatever, 10, 15 yards across to the other side, um, maybe soccer. Like I, I doubt you can actually communicate that much from the touchline in, in soccer. But in my sport, there's no point trying to communicate. You've got two runners that you can send out, but again, it's a third party sending out a message. And, and the runner is usually the guy that's at the pub with the, the lads as well. So when you tell someone that they've messed up, the runner's going to go out and just go, it's all right, mate. Like, you know, the coach told me to, to give you a bit of a rocket, but it's okay. And so your message doesn't get there anyway. But can we get to a point where we're empowering and educating the players so that we can deliver less messages at a higher quality, so less volume. But when you do get spoken to by the head coach in particular, but really any of the coaches, it is so valuable to that player that you're actually making them better. Um, and again, I, I think that comes through a process, to Darren's point or to, to both your points, by analysing your own communication and saying, actually, all my messages to the players were negative on game day, but we're trying to set this positive culture. So how does that match up? Like, I'm off my values. I've said, you know, I copied Steve Kerr's values and said it was about joy and enthusiasm and all this sort of stuff. And then all I did was tell the players that they were shit during the game. Like, so that's off. And I think we need to start to get to that point where we sit and actually listen to ourselves and listen to ourselves fanboy over the team and ride every bump and every tackle and go, actually, there's not much value to the players in me doing that. It's funny you mentioned football, actually. There's a, I, I can never remember which manager it is, which kind of ruins the story, but basically self-aware enough to recognise that he told the players in a meeting, do you realise when I come down and I gesture and I shout and I do all the hand stuff, like just ignore it. It's just bollocks. I've got to be seen to be doing that. And, and I was just like, I, this came up on a coaching course and I was just like, wow. Like, because it's always fascinated me with football that I don't see how you see much in the dugout where they sit and stuff. I'm like, it's just the worst possible place to be coaching from. But if you went and sat in the stands, 
I can imagine the press reports and the fan forums that it just erupt with like, what are they doing? It's, it's just such a bizarre space, but actually just the fact that he recognized if I need to get messages on, I'll do that one-on-one or I'll speak to you at half time. All the other stuff is just for show. Like, don't worry about it. I just, I just, that was really powerful that time. I was just like, yeah, this is, there's way more to this than we think. Um, and, and yeah, that level of self-awareness is, is pretty crucial really. Well, that, that's the probably the most substantial barrier to change is the quote unquote the game, right? Because the game imposes expectations on you. So, and what I mean by that is it could be Joe Blow off the street, it could be the the vice president of the whole organization, the owner. They have this thought of practice needs to look like this. And my coach needs to be ranting and raving to show passion because we stand for passion and blah, blah, blah. So you get sucked into these elements of the game that take you away from delivering that value to your players and so you know we need to acknowledge that and say yeah that is part of it and i've got a million stories that you know i'll share privately with you guys about coaches that have told me similar stuff like phone calls from owners to say like why didn't you behave this particular way and so you know we need to acknowledge that that's a substantial barrier to you know, effective coaching. Um, and then interestingly, one last point, Phil, to you, because you, you've talked a couple of times about being on the touchline. It's been a huge movement in the AFL of coaches going down and sitting on the bench. And, you know, so the analysts and the assistant coaches and everyone kind of in a bit of an NFL model, they're up in the stands, in the coaches' boxes. We've got direct radio down to the bench and a head coach, maybe half the teams, so nine of the teams, maybe their head coach is sitting on the bench and just talking to the players as they come off, you know, pretty much open interchange in, in AFL. So, you know, what are you seeing out there? You know, it's okay. We need, you know, we need to push for five minutes here, whatever it may be, and then deliver those messages directly to them. So that's been a really big change. I think that's really cool. If you're going to do that, again, it's the intent behind it, isn't it? You're not going down there to try and run the game for the team. You're going down there to just to get really good first-hand information and quality feedback that that helps you understand their experience and the experience of the game. Yeah, I'd be all for that, 100%. It's that if you're doing it for the for the other reasons, I think it becomes, you know, that kind of joystick coaching as it gets referred to is, is I would say, pretty dangerous, I think. It's just not, not necessarily why we're in the roles we're in, so... That's awesome. Um, guys, again, I'm conscious of your time and that, you know, Cody's just said he's got a load of good stories to tell us off air. So I think we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. Um, do you want to hit us up with your recommendations for other quality content? Like what have you been engaging with? What's good? Um, what would you give give people a nudge towards? Um, and Daz, we'll come to you first. Um, well, the, the thing that I was thinking about recommending was a book that I just finished reading called, uh, it's called Calling Bullshit. The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. Uh, it's by Carl Bergstrom and Devin West. Um, and I actually did a book club review with this with a, a group called the Pineapple Book Club last night, which was really cool. Um, and it kind of just made me reflect back on probably some bullshit that I contributed to over the, the years, but actually a bit of a heads up for... Um, for things that get put out in the press and social media and social media is a, a great place to pick up stuff, but it's also the devil as well. Um, and and uh, 
you know, it, it got me thinking about expected goals, for example, and what does that actually mean? Um, maybe there's a use for it. I'd love to have a chat with someone about it, but that's something I definitely re recommend people reading. Um, and they do a course. I can't remember where the course is delivered, but um, there's some really cool stuff on YouTube about it as well. Awesome. Top man. Thank you very much. Cody, what are you saying? Daz has gone hard. Expected goals. You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to question it at all, mate. Um, <laughs> yeah, mine would be Belonging by Owen Eastwood. So just incredible book. He's done some incredible work, all rooted in the Maori culture from New Zealand and his personal journey of you know, finding out his heritage and and it's, you know, part autobiographical and part just insights into how deeply ingrained belonging is in us and really kind of, to me, points out how poor a job we do with facilitating belonging, given that our jobs in team sport is to facilitate belonging and to get people to achieve things together in what well, are quite large groups. And so, yeah, it's it's brand new, hot off the presses. Um, but I sat down and couldn't put it down. So for me, that's quite rare. Uh, yeah, so Belonging by Owen Eastwood. Love it. Thank you very much. Guys, this has been awesome. Um, really, really enjoyed this. I think we've covered some some awesome stuff. So um, thank you very much. I'm going to round up the roundup. To those listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to a really excellent discussion. As always, links to the content uh, discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. Thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. 